Good morning, church. It's nice to be with you again. Adele and I always enjoy uh, being here. About once a year, we get to come, and, and um, it is our honor, absolutely. In fact, we're on vacation. Our vacation started yesterday, and we wanted to be here so bad we just stayed because <laughs> we just love you, love you guys, and what God is doing in you and what God is doing through you. Uh, it's a little unsettling when someone introduces you by saying, old and crusty. Yeah, I followed long enough to get that, <laughs> but it kind of scared me at first. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so it's nice to be uh, nice to be with you all. Um, we are here in the Mid Atlantic. Uh, Adele's actually from here, but I'm from down south of the Potomac, and we're here uh, in the Mid Atlantic, serving at the invitation of God because of the grace of God and the mercy of God. And by the provision of God and the way that God is providing for us primarily is through churches in this network that Dan mentioned. And so uh, at the very outset, I want to say to you all, thank you. Thank you for being a part of that network. Thank you for your uh, your witness and your example here uh, in this part of Baltimore City and for um, uh, your support of the work that we're able to be involved with. Um, my work is primarily in the area of church strengthening. So I work with pastors and pastoral staff and key leaders in local churches and largely at soul care. So here's my concern, that uh, the professional aspect of what it is to be a Christian minister, um, that concern for skill and competence in what you do, because everybody is concerned no matter what you do, right, that you have some skill and you have some competence in it. But in our work, um, my concern is that it never, ever gets to the place that we neglect the care of our souls. Because the bottom line is sometimes when God whispers into our ears and says, lead this way, it is counterintuitive to the way the world teaches leadership. And so I want to make sure that our pastors and staff and uh, interns and, and people who are key leaders in churches and elders are, are hearing the voice of God on a regular basis so that they're prompted to lead you uh, in, in that way. Now, I have um, a, a goal for us today. Well, first of all, let me say this. If you're here this morning, I don't want to trip on this. If you're here this morning and you're a guest, welcome, and please come back. Come back to get to know these people better. Come back to hear from Dan and from other people here in the local church that do the teaching. Uh, please don't hold this against them. That's what I'm saying, okay? Uh, uh, I do hope you'll come back. But if you're here and you're exploring faith in Christ, Okay, you're searching, seeking, asking questions, those sorts of things. In just a moment, I'm going to share a story from the New Testament, and I want to say to you up front, if you're here and you're in that explorative stage, that I actually come to the story with a bias, and the bias is this, I believe that it's true. Now, you may sit there and go, oh, yeah, well. But when you hear the story, you're going to say, how could anybody in their right mind believe that story is true? And I want you to know, I, I'm not sure that I'm in my right mind, but I do believe this story to be true factually true, that it actually happened to real people in real time. Secondly, to those of you who are followers of Christ, whether you're already covenanted to this community of faith or some other, uh, I want to say to you that not only do I believe the story to be factually true, but I believe it's also mysteriously uh, a life lesson. So it's not just a story that was created in order to teach a lesson. It is an actual story that happened, but I believe the Holy Spirit will teach us a lesson from it. He will teach us about living life following after the Christ. And so if you're here and you're investigating, remember as we review the story, it's true. And if you're here and you already believe it's true, remember that it serves a purpose to teach and shape our lives. The Holy Spirit will actually do that if we will give him that opportunity. And toward that end, I want to invite him to be our teacher now. Will you join me in that prayer?
Our Father in heaven, thank you so much that through the history of the world, from the beginning until now, you have been at work in the lives of people. Thank you that you have whispered and sometimes shouted, that you have demonstrated with power and sometimes with just an inside our soul kind of itch that we can't quite get to. Thank you that you have not given up on us. Thank you, God, for the story that's about to be read. Thank you for the events as they unfolded in those days at that time. Thank you for protecting the story through the centuries since. And now, Holy Spirit, as you inspired them in the moment, as you inspired their writing, as you have protected them through the ages, would you bring them alive to us now? Would you teach us and shape us so that when this encounter is over, we'll be more like Christ than we've ever been before? And that the evidence of that will not be that we say so, but that so those around us say so as they encounter us in the days and weeks ahead. This we ask for the advance of your kingdom and for your glory in the name of Christ, who along with you and the Holy Spirit reign forever, one God. Hallelujah. Amen. <clears throat> so the way I want to do this is three parts. Part one, I want to set up the story, give you the background, okay? Part two, I want to read the story. And part three, I want to share some of the life lessons that I think may be applicable. Part one, part two, part three. So does that make sense? Nod your heads, don't nod off. All right, good. Let me give you the background first. First of all, you probably know this. We've already had an announcement about the Christmas market. It is only 39 days till Christmas. Turn to a neighbor and go, wow. Only 39 days. If you're a Hallmark fan, as I am, <laughs> you know the movie started on October the 31st. It was a good night for me. Gave candy away, and then at 8 o'clock went inside and watched a Christmas movie. I love Christmas, all things Christmas. I can't get enough of it. I'm an incarnational Christian. That's where I kind of land in terms of the hinge moment in all of history. I just love Christmas. You know the basic characters in the story, right? Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Uh, the Christmas story as it, it kind of unfolds, the stable and the manger and the reason that they're there is because there's no room at the inn. There's no room at the inn is really a critical phrase in a lot of different uh, aspects of life, but one is this. They were transient. They were itinerant. They were homeless at that point in their lives. So Joseph and Mary had been betrothed to each other, which was a really legal kind of marriage relationship short of physical intimacy. And they lived in a village called Nazareth in Galilee, which is up north. That's why I have my hand up here. <laughs> it's up north. But they had migrated down to Bethlehem because of a, a census that was being taken, a taxation-based census that was be take, being taken by the Roman Empire. So they had moved, which was not an easy move for them to make, especially given the fact that she was with child. They had made this journey down to Bethlehem, and so they were itinerant. They were transient. They get down there, and there's no place in the inn because a lot of people were from Bethlehem. Their family lineage was from there. So, so they're staying there, and that's where Jesus is born, is in the, in the stable there and laid in the manger. You remember that part of the story. Uh, one of the really cool parts of that story is when Joseph has a dream. And you have dreams, right? Nod your heads. <clears throat> so Joseph has a dream, and in his dream, uh, he, he imagines that God is saying to him, take your family and get out of town. 
get out of Dodge, leave. But don't go back up north to Nazareth, go down to Egypt. Uh, and so it's called, in, in Christian circles, historically called the, the flight to Egypt. If you go and visit uh, the Coptic Christian tradition in Egypt, you'll find lots of uh, shrines that are still there for places where Joseph and Mary and Jesus may have visited. We don't have any idea how long they were there. None whatsoever. We know that Herod, who was behind the, the evil that was going on uh, in the region, uh, had every child two years and younger killed. You remember that part of the story? And so sometime in that two-year period, and we know that by the time Jesus was 12, the family had moved back to Nazareth, but we don't really know how long they wandered around in Egypt itinerant, not really having a place to call home, transient, if you will. And if you are a parent or a student of uh, child development, you know that in those first two, three, four, five years, very significant kinds of developmental issues take place in a child's life. So Jesus learned a somewhat transient lifestyle in those years. Now, fast forward to uh, the time that he's 30, and at 30, he goes public with his ministry. He's baptized by John the baptizer. And uh, when he goes public, <clears throat> once again, he goes transient. He goes itinerant. He goes homeless. He begins to just wander about, really, with these disciples, these 12 guys, going from village to village, community to community, town to town, that sort of thing. <clears throat> Seemed quite comfortable with that uh, way of living. Um, but you wonder, where does he sleep at night? I mean, really, where does he sleep at night, you know? Uh, the guys that are going to follow him, what does that mean for them? Is this a destination or is it a journey? That's important metaphor. <laughs> it's not a destination. It is a journey. And, and so where do they stay? Well, Jesus famously said on an occasion, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, that was a messianic title, uh, the Son of Man doesn't even have a rock to make a pillow. That's his home base. He traveled from place to place. Capernaum was a place he was often. Uh, he stayed, we know, with uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law uh, at least once, perhaps more. Uh, whenever he was down in Jerusalem, in the greater Jerusalem metropolitan area, my hand is over here now because it's down south, you see. Whenever he was in Jerusalem, he stayed very often at a suburban little uh, home, uh, two miles, roughly 1.7 miles southeast of town in a little village called Bethany where there were three siblings that lived, and these three siblings hosted Jesus and the guys all the time. The three siblings are, those of you who may have been raised in church and know Sunday school kinds of stories, their names were Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Absolutely true. Now, ladies in their world did not have an identity apart from their man. <laughs> not woman, but their man, yeah? They had no identity at all. So Martha and Mary would have been known as their father's daughter, until their father's passing. After that, they would have been known as their husband's wives, which they were apparently not married. So how they were known was as their brother's sisters. This was their identity. This is who they were. That'll be important for the story also as we kind of go along, that their very identity was tied to Lazarus as a person. Lots of stories about these three Brothers and sisters, lots of them. I may even have told one of them when I was here with you before. Uh, I, and uh, they encountered Jesus and the guys frequently. Well, in John's account of the life and times of Jesus, when we get to chapter 11 of that part of the story, uh, Jesus is again in Jerusalem. He is again staying with Lazarus and Martha and Mary and Bethany. And there is some tension that is taking place at the end of chapter 10 between Jesus and the religious leaders of the time, which also happened a lot. Uh, religious leaders and Jesus didn't see eye to eye. 
They had differences of opinions about Messiah and who he was and that sort of thing. Jesus had an incredible sense of timing. And so he knew that in spite of the fact that the tension was very real, palpable, really, uh, even the disciples recognized it, that it was not time for him yet. And so he leaves Bethany. He takes the road to the east down to Jericho, crosses the River Jordan, and goes up the other side of the river to the area of uh, the New Testament uh, biblical times called Perea, which was um, villages that were mixed with Jewish people and Gentile people, which of course were anybody that were not Jewish people. And that's where Jesus and the disciples were when they get a text message uh, that says essentially this, Jesus, your BFF, Lazarus, is sick. <clears throat> and Jesus does something then that I, I identify with. So I'm an introverted uh, intuit intuitive kind of person. I, I, I get inside my head to figure things out instead of outside to figure things out. If you are married to an extroverted kind of person who processes externally, you know when they have a problem because they tell you about it ceaselessly, out loud, reviewing every possible reason, every possible alternative. But I like to sit and play those games inside my head and not say anything until I think I have figured it out. And so Jesus does something that I kind of do sometimes. I can almost imagine him pacing because that's what I would do. Uh, he begins to think out loud. And the disciples get to hear it, which is why John writes it down under the inspiration of the Spirit. Basically, he goes through a, um, a process. This is a crisis. Lazarus is sick. We were just there a few days ago. What happened? You know, he gets sick in a hurry and he's going down fast. So as he's thinking out loud, this is sort of what he says. This is not going to end bad. I know that. I know that. My father is up to something. I just don't know what. I don't know what. What is he up to? Whatever it is, it's going to be big. It's going to be huge. It's going to be giant. It's going to reveal the father in ways that people have never seen the father revealed before. So he's, he's processing what's going on. And because he becomes comfortable with the fact that God is up to something, he stays in Perea. This is very hard to believe because he loves Lazarus and Martha and Mary. They are significant parts of the Jesus story throughout the New Testament. And Lazarus is sick. And in those days, it wasn't good to get sick. <laughs> there was not penicillin. You didn't run to the doctor or go over to the Rite Aid and see the Minute Clinic or anything like that. I mean, you got sick. That was bad news. And it was terrible news for Martha and Mary uh, that, that Lazarus was going down. But Jesus stays in Perea, and the guys stay in Perea, and the guys are perfectly fine with staying in Perea because that little bit of tension that I mentioned in Jerusalem that drove them there a few days ago was people picking up stones. That's a little bit of tension. So if, if you're Jesus, don't get crazy. And you guys are the disciples, and a bunch of people start picking up stones to stone Jesus and you're not absolutely sure how accurate their arms are? It's not comfortable, right? So this is the way the disciples are processing this. They're saying, good, <laughs> let's not go back. This is a great idea. We'll just pray for Lazarus. And <clears throat> so, uh, so that's the way they're, they're processing it until Jesus says Lazarus is asleep and we should go and wake him. Now, you know, if you've read the story, that when Jesus says asleep, he's using it as uh, an analogy for death, right? But the disciples, whoo, it's a six-foot story in a five-foot-ten crowd. They just don't get it, you know? <clears throat> so 
Instead, they become their own grandmothers. They start giving grandmotherly advice. They go, whoa, whoa, Lazarus is asleep. Well, that's great. He'll build his strength up. Let's let him sleep a little while longer. He'll feel better, Jesus. He'll feel better. And so Jesus says very plainly to them, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, Lazarus is dead. And then, listen to this, he says, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. So Jesus loves Lazarus. Lazarus gets sick and declines swiftly. And it wasn't about Lazarus. Jesus loves Martha and Mary. And Martha and Mary have to watch their brother, not just their brother, but their sense of identity, get sick and decline quickly. They have to go through all of that pain, all of that loss, all of that grief. They go through all of that. They love Jesus. Jesus loves them. They go through all of that. And it wasn't about them. Jesus had developed the capacity to believe that the Father was at work in a meta kind of way. And to allow the circumstances to play out as they played out, trusting God and watching for God to do what only God could do. It's a part of the journey of faith for us to get there because we all have terrible times in our lives. We all have times where things don't go like we wanted them to. I personally, being from Georgia, am not comfortable with the phrase, things are going south here. (laughs) People say that all the time. But, But I do understand that when they say that, what they mean is things have gone bad. And to be a person of faith, so much faith in Christ, that you would choose to believe in spite of the fact that things have gone south in you or in people that you love, that God is still at work. This is remarkable. It's remarkable. And that's exactly who Jesus was, and that's exactly the way he was, big picture thinking, if you will. And so Thomas, who sometimes gets the weight of being called the doubter, actually in this story stands up and says, you know what? He's right. Let's go with Jesus back to Bethany, and if we die, we die with Christ. Gutsy, gutsy kind of call on Thomas's part. Now, with that background, so that's part one. That's the background. You feel the tension of the story? So Jesus and the guys make their way back to Bethany, and that's where I want to pick up reading the story is from their arrival back in Bethany. This is the word of the Lord from John's Gospel, chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. What I would love for you to do is if you feel comfortable trusting me that I'm simply reading the Scripture, um, and I I will make a couple of uh, comments, but they'll be very, very brief, a sentence here or there. I'd like for you to just sit back and hear the story because it is a remarkable story. If you want to read along, certainly feel free to do so. But more importantly, I want to make sure you have the text in your mind, John 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 17 and following, so that you can go back and read it this week. Because I believe as you read it over and over again, God's Spirit will speak to you through it. So give him that opportunity. But right now, simply hear this word from the Lord. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Now, in their world, people were buried on the day of their death. They didn't have the embalming systems like we have today, and so this is what happened. So two days' walk to Berea, two days' walk back, Lazarus' illness and burial. It, it is likely that when Jesus got the message that Lazarus is sick, he was already dead. 
Now, Bethany was just um, a couple miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many, many people had come there to console Martha and Mary in their loss. There was seven formal days of grieving allowed in their faith. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, though Mary stayed at the house. <clears throat> Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a statement of faith. That's a statement of faith. She'd never seen anybody healed like that, you know. But she believed Jesus could do that. She'd seen blind people see and deaf people hear and lame people walk, but somebody going down fast and dying, you know. She'd not personally witnessed that. And she says, I believe, I believe if you had been here, you would not have died. But then she says, but even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. I've been through pain. I am hurting. I've watched my brother die. But I still believe you, Jesus. I still believe you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said. He will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus is talking about a present reality, a hope in the moment, and she turns it into a theology class. Right? So there's subgroups inside the Jewish sect of the day, a subsects inside the Jewish group of the day, and, and, and in one of those groups is the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad, you see. <laughs> And then there are other groups, Pharisees and others, who do believe in the resurrection. Martha turns this incredible, mysterious, powerful message from Jesus, your brother will rise again, into a theology class. Oh, yes, of course he will. In the last day, when all rise, he will rise again. And Jesus looks at her and he says, I am resurrection. I am life. It's not a class. It's not a theological concept. I am resurrection and life. And anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Martha, Martha, do you believe this? It's a critical moment for Martha's faith. This is a chance to ramp it up. Yes, Lord. She says, I have always believed you are Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. She has affirmed this in spite of the incredible loss in her life. Then she goes to Mary, and she says to Mary, she pulls her aside from the mourners and says to her, the teacher is here, and he wants to see you. So Mary immediately got up and left. She immediately did. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha had met him, which only makes sense, right? So Martha comes and says, the teacher is here. Go, so she can give him very specific directions. And Martha and Mary goes right to where Jesus is. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her get up and leave so hastily, they made what was a natural assumption that she was on her way back to the tomb where Lazarus had been buried so that she could weep and mourn more. So they followed her. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. You heard that phrase before? 
It's identical to what Martha said. She is still a person of faith, just like her sister Martha. That is a part of the story that you just can't miss. I mean, they had every reason in the world to reject Jesus now. And they refused. Not only the loss of their brother, but the sense of uncertainty in their own lives and identity in the world. And still they affirm, no, I believe, I believe, I believe. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing along with her, a deep anger, a, a, a joylessness, a, a hurt, a burden came up within him. He was deeply troubled within himself. Where have you put him? He asked. Well, come and see, they told him. And in the shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. Standing outside the tomb of someone who he loves, seeing the suffering of people he loves, seeing the impact of what death, the consequence of sin, seeing the impact of death in the lives of people who he loves, he could do nothing but Now, the people who were standing there, uh, they were divided. They are always divided on the Jesus issue. Some of them said, look at how much he loved him. But some others said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? The people divided about Jesus. They always have been. They always will be. If you are internally, it's okay. All right. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. He was still angry about this whole situation. He was still hurt and frustrated about all that was going on. And he came there, and the tomb was a classic tomb. It was a, a cave uh, in the side of the hillside with a stone in front of it. And Jesus says, roll the stone aside. But Martha, who is the dead man's sister, just to reinforce that Lazarus is dead, the dead man's sister said... Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Terrible, she said. This is, um, this is one of those places where the King James just makes it sound so nice. You can imagine someone with a British accent reading the King James Bible at this point. It says, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> Doesn't that sound, that sounds really nice. That is not what she was saying. She was saying, we do not want to open this tomb. Leave the stone where it's at. This is not the right time to do that. Jesus said, did I not tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? And so they rolled the stone aside. And Jesus looked up to the heavens, and this is what he said. Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I needed to say it out loud for the sake of all of these people who are standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. And then Jesus shouted and in a price is right kind of moment looked into the tomb and said, Lazarus, come on down. <laughs> he said, Lazarus, come out. And John said, the dead man came his hands and his feet were bound in grave clothes, and his face was wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus said to those standing there, unwrap him and let him go. Unwrap him and let him go. You just got to see this mummy kind of character bobbing out, you know, because that's exactly what it looks like. Now, turn to your neighbor and say, that's an incredible story. In the original Greek at the end of the text, it says, Wow. <laughs> Or it should. 
Lazarus was dead for four days. Four days. He got sick. He suffered. He went down fast. His sisters took care of him, watched over him. He went down fast. He died. They had to anoint his body and wrap it in grave clothes and bury him the day that he died. And he'd been dead for four days. And all of that pain and all of that grief was to give God an opportunity to reveal and do what only God can do. This, I believe, to be an absolute true story. For those of you who are followers of Christ, I want to remind us that in the truth of the story, there are also life lessons that I don't want us to miss. And the ones that I want to kind of zero in on as I close today are those life lessons that has to do with what it actually is to be the church, what it is to be the church. And this kind of backs up in some of the comments that you were making a few moments ago. At the, early in this story, Jesus comes and, uh, and he uh, comes to the, the, suf- the, the sisters as they are grieving this loss. And he feels the pain uh, of the sisters and the mourners, and he himself feels pain. In, in biblical language, um, the imagery of death is referred often not just to the physical death, but to the condition of spiritual death. All right, you follow that? So we're, we're all born with this God-sized hole in our heart, all of us. And um, the potential for life is incredible, <laughs> created in the image of God. And though we've marred that image quite a good deal, it is redeemable, and it has, in fact, been redeemed by Christ himself. And that hole can be filled by the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit only. But until that happens, the way the Scriptures chooses often to describe our lives is spiritually death. So in the same way that Lazarus was actually really dead in this story, there are people in your lives, people that you know, family members, friends, people you work with, people you go to school with, neighbors that live on the right, the left, or across the street from you. There are people that you know who are spiritually dead. And they're really dead. Seriously. And uh, Jesus is aware of that, and he is saddened by that condition, and, and he is moved by that condition, and the people around the dead people are moved by that condition. Now, here's what I want to ask you. Those people in your life, brothers, sisters, moms, dads, cousins, uncles, aunts, work associates, people across the street, next door, people in class with you, are you moved by their condition? Are you grieved that they are spiritually dead? Because the truth is, most of us are not prompted to take action, risky, faith-filled action, on behalf of another until we are deeply moved by the condition of the other. So if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, uh, one of the things I want you to know before conversion is you... You need to love people who do not yet know Jesus. I mean at a deep place in your soul. Love them. And that means uh, in this story, there's that humorous King James moment, you know, Lord, he stinketh, move the stone out of the way. That means being close enough that sometimes we get the stink on us. We can't keep a great distance between us and these people that we say that we love. We have to get close enough to sometimes get the stink on us. And and then also in terms of pre-conversion, Jesus says to the crowd there, he says, move the stone out of the way. Now, 
Don't, if Jesus can say, Lazarus, come forth, couldn't he say, stone, move out of the way? Right? And if you believe that Jesus could, could call a dead man from the tomb, don't you believe he could move a stone? You know, maybe a wink. <laughs> Why? Because he needed them to remove barriers between him and those who are spiritually dead. In Lazarus' case, physically dead. The job of the church is not to create barriers between Jesus and those who are spiritually dead. It's to remove barriers. And for way too many years, the church has done a really good job of creating barriers. We've made it hard for people to come to Jesus, not easy. And Jesus says, let's make it easy. Move the stone out of the way. Just move it out of the way. The stuff that stands between your friend, your neighbor, your work associate, your, your classmate, whatever, the person that doesn't know Christ yet as their Savior, the thing that stands between them, a part of our call as a church is to move that stuff out of the way. Not to keep it there and give them barriers they got to climb over to get to Jesus. Just move it out of the way. There's some stuff we cannot do, ladies and gentlemen. We cannot call dead people to life. Only Jesus can do that. But we can love those dead people. And we can stay close enough to those dead people we sometimes get the stink on us. And we can move the barriers out of the way so they too can know and meet our Jesus. So that they can hear him say their name, come out. That's pre-conversion, but there was also post-conversion work for the church here, and I don't want you to miss that either. Uh, Lazarus comes out of the tomb, and he's, he's, his uh, hands are, are tied down, so he's unable to serve, and his feet are bound, so he's unable to move and to go, and his eyesight is covered, so he doesn't see quite that well, and, and, and he was likely struggling to breathe with that cloth that would have been over his face, so he couldn't inhale all of the goodness of life, those kinds of things. And Jesus said to the people who were standing around, the same people that he said, move the bear between me and the dead one, he said to them, unloose him and let him go. And so to the church, to those of you who are followers of Christ, the message for people in your life who are friends, who come to be people of faith in Jesus, the message is turn them loose. Don't bind them up. Don't keep them in the dark. Don't make it impossible for them to breathe in the goodness of God's grace and exhale the wonder of God's mercy. Don't do that. Uh, let them go, unbind them, set them free, encourage them, equip them, direct them, send them on their way, uh, fan fires in their lives, those kinds of things. This is who we are as a church. This is what we do. We stay close to people who don't know Christ, close enough to get the stink on us. We love them and we move barriers out of the way so they can hear Christ call their name. And when they respond and come out, we still stay close but not to keep them tied up and bound with rules and regulations of religiosity, but instead to set them free so they can see, so they can hear, so they can breathe, so they can speak, so they can serve, so they can go and join us in the mission. Make sense? Our Father, this work is your work. Only you can call from death into life, from darkness into light. But you've invited us, and oh God, so many mornings I don't even know why, but you have invited us to stay close to those whom you love, close enough to get the stink on us, to move the barriers out of the way between them and you, and when they come to faith in you, to be your servants at loosing them and letting them go. Show us now, Holy Spirit, as we sit here in this space, in this place, in this moment, show us now people across the street, next door, in the class, relatives, family, friends. Help us to love them like that and to loose them like that.
in Christ's name.